This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Because everyone deserves a great night's sleep. Get $50 off any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com fool and enter the promo code fool. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hello, bro. Hello, Allison. Today is the release of the completely revised and updated third edition of The Motley Fool Investment Guide. First published back in 1996, this book demystified Wall Street and helped countless people learn to invest. So, we were able to convince David Gardner... Hello, David. It didn't really take a lot of arm twisting, I don't think. No, it didn't. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me, though. Yeah. This is awesome. Let's talk about it. I've, I'm excited that you're always willing. You have yet to turn me down when I ask you to come on the show, and I really appreciate that. Um, of course, David is our fearless co-founder and co-author of the book, and so he's here to share some of his classic investing lessons. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. It's time for Answers, Answers, and today's question comes from Eric. Eric writes, most stock rating systems classify stocks as either buy, hold, or sell. It seems to me that the hold rating should not exist. If the investment thesis for a stock or other investment vehicle is not convincing enough to buy, then you shouldn't hold either. Is everyone just falling into some mental trap, such as sunk cost fallacies, status quo bias, etc.? Or is there some strategy nuance that I am not understanding? Eric, it's your lucky day, because we have David Gardner himself here to help answer your question. Well, so I, I'm just on the hook right now for the answer. I just need oh, well, to go right in. I don't know, right bro. In. Do you want to go Robert, first? Robert, you don't want to. I mean, I know you have thoughts. Well, I do have thoughts. So uh, we've talked about in. First of all, I, I sort of agree with them because we've talked about in a previous episode about one way to evaluate your holdings is to look, pretend like you went straight to cash, and then look at each of your stocks and say, "Would I buy it today?" And if the answer is no, then maybe you should sell it. There are some reasons why you might consider holding on to something like tax issues. But I would never let taxes prevent you from selling something that's no longer a good investment. I'm very sympathetic to the question as well. So I join Robert with his thinking. Um, certainly for Motley Fool Stock Advisor, where I spend um, at least a third of my work time, in addition to Rule Breakers, Supernova Podcasts, etc. Uh, so in Stock Advisor, we have very few stocks on hold. And the phrase that I like to use, at least in Motley Fool Rule Breakers, is penalty box, and we send stocks there. So a tiny percentage. If we have a hundred recommendations in our universe for those services, we might have a few that are in the penalty box. But that means the other ninety-seven or so are being actively recommended to buy. So there really isn't much of a hold state. And certainly, if it were a sell, well, we'll tell you, our member, that first, so you can go ahead and sell uh, even before we would record it for ourselves. So, so yeah, it's mainly all buy all the time. And the reason I think that works is because if you're finding good companies and the stock market tends to rise over time, an average of around 10% a year, it's generally good to always be buying and always be thinking buy. I will say that if the hold is coming from a Wall Street analyst, there's some debate about why they do that. So, let's say you're an analyst with a big Wall Street firm. So, you have your job as an analyst, but that firm also wants investing banking business from companies. And you also want to be in good graces with the CEOs of companies so you can have access to them to do your analysis. So, what some people suspect is that a hold is essentially a secret sell. You just don't want to say sell because then you risk your firm's ability to be in a have a good relationship with that company. Ah, um, sneaky. Yeah, the Bespoke Investment Group did an analysis in 2015 of of the 12,000 plus ratings on stocks in the S and P 500, 
and only about 7% were sell. The majority were buy or hold. So basically, there's just this buy or hold bias mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. among analysts, as opposed to saying, like, you know, I think you should sell it, but I don't want to make anyone mad at me. <laughs> so, briefly, in defense of hold or in support of hold, because uh, Robert and I are generally agreeing with each other anyway, but to talk out the other side of my mouth for a second, um, sometimes there are stocks that you might have questions about because the business is shifting or there is a turnover in the CEO. You're not really sure who's going to be the next person, or you might know who the next person is, but you just don't quite know that much. You might have a long term position there that you, uh, if you were to sell, you, there are significant tax consequences. Robert mentioned earlier the importance of thinking about taxes here. So there might be a reason to hold or for us to tell our members, Hey, we think you should hold this. We're not confident enough right now to say it's an active buy, but at the same time, we're not going to tell you to sell because things might be just fine. And if you were to sell, it could be a big tax hit, especially if it's like a multi-bagger held over a number of years. Um, so I think that there is room for 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 hold. Yeah. Well, the idea with saying penalty box instead, then that's the idea of like, well, you're in there for a couple minutes. We'll reevaluate. We're going to see what happens later. It's not like it's a never-ending thing. You get it, Allison. Yeah. That's exactly why we picked that that name. Because like usually we want to put stuff back out on the ice. Right. Oh, look at that metaphor. That I love one. it. Good one. <laughs> This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the cost. Buying Casper is easy. You order it online, it's delivered to your door in a compact box, and you get free shipping and free returns with a risk-free 100-day trial period. Uh, I've heard from fools here at HQ and even listeners of the podcast who have their Casper mattresses and loved every second of the process and sleeping on it and everything. So, you, fair listeners, can save an additional $50 towards a mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash fool and entering the promo code fool. That's casper.com slash fool, promo code fool, terms and conditions apply. Bring on the clowns, the jokers, and the fools. I had the time of my life and the life of my time in the company of fools. More than 20 years ago, a couple of liberal arts majors decided to write a book about investing? What? And then, to make matters worse, they wore jester caps on the cover and called themselves fools. Why would anyone take advice from these guys? <laughs> the crazy thing is, people did take advice from them, including you, our listeners. <laughs> and one of them is David Gardner. He joins us today to share some of his most timeless investing lessons. David, thank you again for joining us. It is my pleasure. So, people pay good money to have you get up in front and speak to them at events, but we get it for free every month here at the Molly Fool at our huddles. Uh, so, it's always nice, I feel, for you to come into the studio and talk to our listeners so that they get a little bit of the awesome goodness that is you. Well, that's very thoughtful of you to say. Thank you, Allison. I'm only I noticed that, that Robert you're my didn't boss. say anything. That's, okay, yeah, that's, yeah, fine. that's why. I, I, I wrote that for her. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get down to brass tacks. Enough All right. with the goody two shoes talk. All right, well, I let's did, go. I did, well, I needed to make up for calling you crazy guys in hats who are like offering financial I was advice. always fine with that as yeah. you would I mean we were the ones who chose the name yeah, and the true. hats and everything you that owned we've it. done so we owned it and we still do Yeah yeah absolutely All right so we pulled five topics around investing that you'll find in the Motley Fool Investment Guide again that is our book that is coming out today third edition newly revised completely updated fresh for 2017 18 let's go Yes so David is here to talk about some of those investing principles that you can learn about in the investment guide and the first one is buy and hold and hold and hold and hold. Mm, yeah. So this is 
probably the hardest thing for most people to do, especially people who are new to the stock market who heard phrases like buy low, sell high, um, which has the word sell coming right after you've bought low, or a world, uh, whether it's news media driven, that's always trying to get you to think something's changed and you should take some action, or even just our human instinct to take action because in most spheres of life, doing something leads to results that we hope are pleasing, but you feel like you should be doing something. But I think that our record now shows the benefits of, as you said, Allison, buying and holding and holding and holding. So, there are any number of stories that I could tell right now, and I'm tempted to tell like my greatest hits of all time, which would be maybe Amazon, which has been an awesome hold and hold and hold from three to over a thousand. So, that's been an amazing investment recommendation for our members. But I decide let's go a little bit more recent. This is still a buy and hold and hold and hold, but NVIDIA. So, NVIDIA is a fascinating example of this. This is a company that I think many of us may have heard of these days, but NVIDIA kind of years ago was making graphic cards for PCs. So, for gamers, for video gamers like me, you would try to get a really nice NVIDIA card to drive the graphics part of your computer that would make the games awesome. And over the course of time, the business has continued to diversify. They started turning these from graphics cards into being the processing units for the machines. And then they took their graphical processing units and they started to do things like, hey, let's put them in cars. And as things become more autonomous for cars, we can be driving that. And by the way, AI is showing up and we can we can help with that and and Tesla Tesla's beautiful screen that you have we can we can participate there and so Nvidia today is a monster it is an awesome company but here's the story some of the numbers so I first recommended it on April 15th tax day 2005 <laughs> it was at six dollars and 61 cents split adjusted today so in today's terms it was at 6.61 uh, from there two years later it went to 40. Awesome. Okay. All awesome. Right. 2005 to 2007, remarkable. Buy and hold. Hmm. And then, as you might remember, 2008 oh, yeah. and 9 weren't great years for not just the stock market, but the world, yeah. especially the financial world. It went in the next year from 40 to 5. So we went Ooh. from 6 to 40 and from 40 down to below our cost. Ugh. And that didn't feel very good for our members, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. It certainly didn't look good for me with some egg on my face. Uh, one year later, though, it had bounced back as we start coming out of 2009, and it gets back to 20. So, 6 to 40 to 5 to 20, all of this in just four or five years. And then, nine weeks later, it drops back to $8.50 again. So, without, I don't want to create a too crazy a stock wrap in anyone's head. In fact, if you are an investor or you enjoy following individual stocks, just go online to our site or any other that has a stock wrap and just look at NVDA over the last 15 years or so. And you'll see this. Uh, it's a big, beautiful graph today that you don't even notice at this point the movements that mm-hmm. I just described for you. Because it looks like it did nothing for 10 years. And in the last two years, it looks like it went crazy. So, really quickly, just to catch back up then, in 2011, six years after I made the recommendation, it's at about 26. And for the next five years, from February 2011 to February of 2016, it basically does nothing. It kind of drops down below 26 and does nothing for five years. That was a great five years for the stock market. So now here we are in 2016. It just gets back to 26, where it had been five years before. And since then, I'm really happy to report (laughs) that NVIDIA has gone. 
to $165 a share. Wow. In fact, it more than tripled last year. It became the number one performing stock on the S&P 500, so we were really happy to have that, a Motley Fool Stock Advisor for members. It tripled, and a lot of people said, well, I mean, that's an amazing move. But it's got to end, probably. I'm, 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 go- I'm only going to tell a story here because I can pat myself on the back a little bit. Why would I tell any other story? So I want to <laughs> let you know that despite hearing that talk, in January of this year, I decided to re recommend it at its price then uh, because I thought the conventional wisdom was this stock is played out. It's tripled. It was the number one performer in the SP 500. So I decided, let me actually go ahead and recommend it, which I did at 103 in January of this year. So here we are. Just about to start September, and it's gone from 103 to 165. So this is a company that we bought and held and held and held, and it's become not just a better company and a more impactful company uh, than we ever thought it would, but it's gone from six to 165. But you had to go through the six to 40 to five to 26 to eight back to 26. So that's a stock that is up um, about 25 times in value, and uh, so it's been a wonderful. Uh, 12-year investment, but it's all been in the last two years, my friends, mainly. Wow. And that's, that's remarkable. So, you need to know these stories to be an investor. Yeah. yeah. And you said Amazon, the same thing, Netflix, the same thing. I mean, all of these all of these stories, even in the 90s, they were saying that the stocks were played out and you got to get out of them. But, you, I mean, you've held on to these stocks for well over 10 years. Yeah. Whether it's Facebook or Priceline or Netflix, Amazon, um, these are all my very best investments. Most of them are up somewhere between fifty and one hundred fifty times in value, and you just basically had to be patient. Yeah, and you just had to. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't be the person who sold, even after a good year. You might have thought, well, it's it's not that you sold when they were down. Which, by the way, each of those got more than cut in half more than once. Mm-hmm. Each of those companies I just mentioned. So you had to be willing to sit through that. But you might have even been patient, and then eventually when it bounced back, you said, "Well, I'm back to even, so I'll sell now." But yeah. no, you had to keep holding. And I think the key is, and I know we have four others, and this is my longest story, yeah. so I'm not going to go too much longer on this one. But the key is that you need to ask yourself: Is this company and what it does important, still relevant, and growing? And for each of those companies, you basically were saying that all the way through. So if you're watching the stock price and the zigs and zags and trying to make your decisions based on that, you probably may have sold or made a bad decision. If you instead ask yourself, is Amazon getting more important every year? Is Netflix adding more subscribers every year? Uh, then you end up holding, I think, these companies and recognizing the great benefits of finding the best winners on our markets. All right, let's move on to the next one because the next one is also very much tied to the first one, and that is controlling your temperament. Sure. Well, and really, all five of these are in, in some ways tied to each other in the sense that a lot of it is about um, how you think and then how you act based on your thinking. So we just talked about buy and hold and hold and hold, and ultimately, that's a lot about how you think and then what you do or don't do based on what you're thinking. So temperament is is what you think, and I guess the much briefer story that I'll tell here is just the story of the word invest. Because the story of the word invest is that it comes from the Latin investiri. I never did take Latin. By the way, I, I, I know, I have to believe, I'm going to guess, first of all, Robert, you took Latin at some point. Uh, I didn't, actually. Allison, did you? Okay, so none of us did, because oh, I did it. Rick says that he did. Rick did. Okay, good. And I know some of our listeners took up to maybe Latin 5, and others were glad that they never had to take Latin. I never did take Latin, but I do love language. So, in, in some ways, I, I regret that I didn't. But I, the way that I make up for it is that I look at the etymologies of words. 
that that would be like down on my tertiary list of it's definitely not a superhero power it's more like a lame following it's like <laughs> i'm i'm about as good as this as i am at fishing which means i'm not good at either but i care about it actually i care about it more than fishing but so etymology of this word investiri the latin it meant basically to put on the clothes of that's that's where our word invest today comes from and so to me that's my temperament that's my mentality when i buy shares in a company when i invest i think of myself as kind of sports fans putting on the home team jersey and i'm going to keep that jersey on it's my team it's I, i'm a part owner it's actually even better than your sports team like you might be a green bay packers fan you might be a new york yankees fan when you buy shares of a company, you're actually literally a part owner of that thing. You're just kind of renting the awesomeness of being, let's say, a Packers or Yankees fan when you wear that shirt. But when we buy shares of public companies, we, we become part owners. And that's really important to me. That's the way I think everybody should think about the markets. But it turns out we're in the minority, which is why we call ourselves Capital F Fools and why we write a book like The Motley Fool Investment Guide, because you're going against the conventional wisdom. You're being a fool. If you think that it's like putting on the home team jersey and staying by your team, but I think we just talked about the value in the previous point of staying by your team. And so I want people to have that mental image of putting on the clothes of um, Under Armour. Well, sometimes literally, <laughs> literally if you own Under yeah. Armour, which by the way has been a painfully bad stock for about 18 months now, but, but I mean, wh- whether it's an actual apparel maker like Under Armour or we just talked about it. Nvidia, which uh, you can get a T-shirt probably somewhere on the internet for. <laughs> Think of yourself as donning the clothes of and stay by that team. Watch them each day. If, if you're really a fan like I am, I don't mean day trade. I mean I enjoy following the stock market. Or um, just check in once a year, but don't change your home team unless you have a real good reason to. All right. The next lesson is being a contrarian. Well, I. Um, we said these are all related, and maybe each of them kind of grows out of the next. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think being an investor is is contrarian. I think most people aren't investors uh, for two reasons. The first is that a lot of people don't have capital yet, and I think one great thing about Motley Fool Answers, and there are other great things too, are that you're often speaking to people who are preparing to become investors or have just started becoming investors. For my own podcast, which is Rule Breaker Investing, I'm generally speaking to people who are probably already investors. So. The reality is most of the world is not investing because it doesn't have the capital. That's reason number one. Reason number two is that even for those who do have the capital, a lot of them are, in my mind, too happy to kind of give it over to somebody else. Even things that we like, like index funds, to just kind of mail it in, not connect with it, uh, and and not really choose into a company like Nvidia um, or Netflix. So I think you're a contrarian if you're listening to this podcast. I think you're a contrarian when you purchase, which I know you will for friends and family as well, the Motley Fool Investment Guide. <laughs> you're definitely a contrarian if you're putting on a fool cap yes. and talking about money. So I think being contrarian is very natural to Allison Southwick, Robert Brokamp, uh, Rick Engdahl, and so many fools here at Fool HQ, and so many of our members, uh, which far outnumber uh, us here in Alexandria, Virginia. So I think you all get it. But just to close, on this one, um, maybe one of my most contrarian principles is the rule breaker approach that I take to investing 
trait number three of the six traits that I'm looking for in stocks that I pick are companies that have already done very well, strong past price appreciation. And I think that, again, flies in the face of what most people think, because most people think it's about buy low, sell high, the old saw goes. So, they're looking for the discarded cigar butts in the gutter, or a stock that's down something near the 52-week low than the 52-week high, if they're even thinking about stocks. And yet, I think you should be looking at the 52-week highs, especially for the kinds of companies that we're focused on, which are the world beaters, uh, the rule breakers. So, I think that that's very um, contrarian on its own, and and I guess I would be remiss if I didn't mention the f- the final principle of rule breaking, which is that we're looking for stocks quote that are quote grossly overvalued end quote <laughs> according to the media, and that is about as contrarian as you can yeah. be for us to make that a buy signal when Amazon bomb is the cover of Barrons. And we're like, that is great news, not bad news. That so goes against the convention that I think that's also contrarian too. All right, we already touched on this one a little bit, but have an ownership mindset. You talked about this with the home, the home jersey and wearing your team uh, literally on your on your sleeve. Yeah, there, there's a lot of overlap there, and 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 that's why I loved your five topics, all of which we talk about in the book and further illustrate. And I hope just double underline for a lot of people and. Again, I think a lot of Motley Fool Answers listeners already know we're contrarian, already know about the ownership mentality, so I might be preaching to the choir, but I guess for this one, I'll just point out the benefits of the ownership mentality. Uh, and that is, I, I, I want to briefly define the word spiffy pop, because um, it's a word that not every Answers listener will recognize, and yet it is my screen name <laughs> online at fool.com. And uh, and so I, I I can't not I'm TMF Spiffy Pop that's my screen name around the fool so I have to explain briefly for those who don't know what that term is uh, it's it's a direct benefit of being an owner and having an ownership mentality so a Spiffy Pop is when you make more money in a single day with a stock than you paid initially for that stock back in the day whenever you did so for example if a stock is at a hundred dollars a share today and you bought it at thirty three. And for whatever reason, tomorrow the stock goes from 100 to 135 in a single day. That's $35 more. You bought it for 33, so you just, in my parlance, you just spiffy pop. Spiffy pop. And it's an awesome feeling. <laughs> uh, a lot of people have never had that feeling. I've never had that feeling. But depending on when you've started investing and how interested you are in individual stocks, and everybody's different, um, if you are a longtime Motley Fool member, um, you might be interested to know, if you didn't already, that this year in Motley Fool Premium Services, we just celebrated our 28th Spiffy Pop just this year. Um, when you look across the stocks that we cover in all our premium services. In fact, um, yesterday or the day before, a Universal Display, which is a rule breaker, Spiffy Popped, and for the third time, an Activision Blizzard, which is a long time holding in Motley Fool Stock Advisor. A lot of people own this company. It's the great video game maker. Mm-hmm. Activision Blizzard Spiffy Popped for its 12th time all time uh, this week. So, 28 times this year it's happened for Motley Fool Premium members. And that's about the best thing that we can do for our members, I think, is to make them that much money and to do it the way we've done it, which is being patient and having an ownership mentality. Earlier this week, you were preparing for an interview with Planet Money, and it was about Marvel. So I was like, I'm going to go hop on the boards and I'm going to see what the chatter was about Marvel right around this time, so the early 2000s. And the 
the chatter was not nice. Like people were really, really upset and thinking that this stock was a bad recommendation. And oh, they were so upset and they were so upset at you. Like, like just like piling on and then all you know, and then towards the end of the the piling on of anger, you kind of popped into the conversation. You're like, hey, I still believe in this stock. I still um and it's just fascinating because you mentioned communicate uh, the community of the Motley Fool. It's just fascinating for me to see that probably over and over again, you get beat up on the boards and you <laughs> <laughs> have to keep saying over and over again, listen, I still believe in this company. Hold, hold, hold. Well, we celebrate um, the spirit of debate. And we love bulls and bears, and we welcome all to Fool.com. And I certainly, in the 24 years or so that we've been running our company, I've had any number of debates, uh, often ones that I was wrong on. Uh, and so I, that's why we celebrate um, that kind of that spirit, and it's one of our core values of the Motley Fool. In fact, so I don't I don't mind that. When I don't like it is is if it's nasty or personal. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think anybody likes that on the internet. Don't feed the trolls. No. Answers, listeners, don't feed the <laughs> trolls. It's always good advice. But I mean, it's it's fine because I'm wrong a lot, and I guess you. You know, we we've selected five topics that are wholesome, good topics, and mm-hmm. I'm bringing you some of my best stories. But I want you to know that I probably pick more bad stocks than anybody at the Motley Fool. I think that's probably factually true. I'm I'm not looking at the numbers as I've brought some other numbers here today. But so so you have to understand that we're willing to be wrong and to lose, and that's a critical part of winning. Um, and winning big, in fact, is to just be willing to look silly. To, in basketball <laughs> terms, to stand at the free throw line and everyone thought you were a professional and airball it eight times in a row. And people are like, I'm paying for this. And sometimes the stock market does that to you or your own style it goes out of style. So I'm, I'm willing to look like a small f fool. Uh, and so the good news, I guess, with Marvel, and I'm looking forward to that. I hope that all comes together with Planet Money. Their interest in Marvel um, is that Marvel has turned out to be such a wonderful investment. It's a 54 bagger since I first picked it in 2002, uh, and that was helped somewhat by Disney buying it out a few years ago. But really, it was a remarkable story of a company that converted from just comic books to movies, and then all the other things that are implied by that, as Iron Man and the Avengers and the X-Men came along. and It was just an awesome, fun investment to win and make a lot of money on. You bring up an interesting point in the story of Marvel as well as NVIDIA, and that you probably couldn't anticipate what was going to happen. It's not like you looked at those companies and like, I know what's going to happen here. Marvel's going to get into movies, and it's going to be huge. So, it wasn't. I wouldn't say it's luck either. Was it your faith in management that they would be able to make good strategic decisions in the future? Well, it's that's a great question, Robert. And uh, yeah, I'm the first to say I don't know how the future is going to play out. So I think we're all kind of playing probabilities or hunches sometimes. But a lot of the time, if you like the person or believe in the visionary who's running a company, like Reed Hastings at Netflix or Jeff Bezos at Amazon, if you're betting on the jockey, I think that even if you're not quite sure when the race is going to end or where it's headed. Like it's that it's not a oval track with you know one and a half furlongs and there's a home stretch. You're not really even sure where the horses are headed. Um, you feel a lot more confident if you've got a great jockey. So I think that's part of it. But I mean specifically in those cases, I had no idea that Nvidia would become what it's become today. Um, Marvel, I did have a little bit more sense in that I didn't recommend the stock before it all took. 
took hold. In fact, I recommended it the summer after that first Spider-Man with Tobey Maguire film came out, and it was amazing. The box office of that film was larger than the market capitalization, the total value of the company. Wow! And so I didn't um, know that the Avengers would show up one day, or Thor would end up being a good movie franchise. But what I did know was that it seemed probable that there would be a Spider-Man 2, and that there might be, with 4,700 other characters, like the Incredible Hulk, and the list goes on, there might be some more here. And so, it worked out really well in that regard. But I think the key here, and we've been underlining these points, we'll just do it again, that ownership mentality, where you're just wearing the jersey and staying with it, unless you see the thing, the company not doing good things in the world. And maybe that's the last point, I know we have one more story, so I'll be quick here, but um, maybe that's the last point about ownership mentality. If you own something, don't you want to feel good about that thing and what it's doing in the world? So, if you have an ownership mentality, I think you also are buying companies whose purposes, their products and services you approve of, or as I've sometimes said in the past, make your portfolio your best reflection of your hopes for our future. And I think that's really important that we make sure that the dollars that we're investing are aligned with the world that we're trying to create. Because, darn it, your dollars are, in a small way, helping to create whatever the future is. And so, the ownership mentality has you saying, I'm going to invest in things that I believe in, and when they win, I'm going to feel not only much richer, and with these companies we're talking about today, you have been, but you're going to feel great about the world now with Netflix having undermined a lot of the cable TV companies, or Amazon having added a lot of value and efficiency to my life anyway as a lazy shopper. And the list goes on of how good these companies are and what they do, and the people who work for them, too. How has running your own company, along with Tom and other people, influenced your investing? So you're not just sitting there at your computer going through filings. You have you know what it's like to manage people, to have an HR department, to have to be doing projections and things like that, and and receive media scrutiny. Robert, you know the great Buffett line is my favorite Buffett line. It's I'm a better investor because I'm a businessman, and a better businessman because I'm an investor. So I think that he, and not just he or I, but a lot of people listening who might be entrepreneurs, anybody who's started something, uh, has has a certain lens that we have perched on the end of our noses, and we see the world now somewhat through that. And yeah, being an entrepreneur or being in business, it doesn't mean that you're magic if you started something. I think all of us here at The Fool have this kind of lens. Um, and I think knowing and caring about organizations and what they do, and specifically this one for us, makes us make better selections of stocks when we're looking at other people's stuff. We're looking at their company, their culture, their balance sheet. It's helped enormously, I think, for us to have that lens. Here at The Motley Fool, so many of us who love business think it's a great thing, not an evil thing, and, and in fact, uh, do think that we're better businessmen, because we're investors as well, which is the other side of that coin, the act of being a stock market picker has you looking at other companies going, hey, we should try that at our company. I just researched this stock. They're doing something cool. Let's try that here. So, it works both ways. It's a powerful dynamic, and I'm glad you asked. All right. Our fifth and final lesson is about diversifying. Yeah, and I I would say, just as we're diversifying our four points with this fifth point, (laughs) uh, you should be doing the same thing with your investments. And I'm pretty sure I don't need to say much at all about this one, because I think Motley Fool Answers listeners are aware of this, and you all help people think about that uh, from month to month as the years while by and we do our podcast. So, you know, for me, I think everybody should have 15 stocks at a minimum. If you're going to choose stocks, which I highly endorse, I think it's a wonderful thing to do. Uh, Even if you don't want to choose stocks, if you want to just invest in index funds, I still think you should buy one stock, even if 
it's a tiny percentage of what you have, just to participate in being an owner and see how the markets work. And darn it, you might even do well with that company, especially if it's one that you feel good about for the next 10 years. So I think, you know, but for investors who are stock market investors, 15 stocks at a minimum, when somebody joins Motley Fool Stock Advisor or Rule Breakers, if they have no stocks, I say get from zero to 15 as quick as you can. Maybe not as fast as a Tesla Model S can get you, <laughs> but as fast as you can get from zero to 15 stocks, please do. Please don't bank it all on one big stock that you think is going to work out. Be diversified. Do you have a level of comfortability with how much you have in a single company? Uh, my level of comfort there is well beyond, I would say, the average humans. And so I don't know that I, I'm a good source of information on this one, Robert, because I'm, a, I'm willing to let a stock become even more than half of everything that I have. Um, and that would only ever happen if that company was. Uh, went up a hundred or more times in value. Uh, I tend not to sell stocks. I tend not to rebalance. I tend to allow stocks to run, which means the good news is when the winners win, they really, really win. There are two forms of bad news. Um, one is that you're going to end up with way too much of that stock, which is kind of bad news because it can be stressful for a lot of people. It's not as much for me. And I guess the other bad news there is if you start becoming unwilling to sell it or shave it down because you don't want to pay those big capital gains taxes because you have a big capital gain when you have a stock like that. But again, um, back to the good news, when you hold your companies and let them prove out their allocations for your portfolio over time, if you invest in bad stocks, which I do, I recommend them all the time. I have a lot of stocks that have lost more than 50% of their value that I've recommended in Rule Breakers and Stock Advisor. I'm ashamed to say it, but it's true. Uh, the good news is, if you didn't add to them, which I don't, then they start to become almost irrelevant in your portfolio. So, the stock that a lot of people live in fear of, something that would lose everything. Imagine if you bought a stock, I still never have done this, that went down 100%. Uh, the good news is, it's it's gone. It's starting to occupy almost none of the allocation of your portfolio. So I like to let my stocks win and run over time. But a lot of people wouldn't be comfortable to the extent that I'm comfortable with that. Well, there you have it, David. Thank you for joining us. If you, our dear listeners, want more foolishness in your life, you want to check out the Motley Fool Investment Guide. It is out today on Amazon, so you can get it for your Kindle. Um, you can also go to a good old-fashioned bookstore and pick it up today. Pick up a copy, for, as you said, for you, for your friends, for your family, for your loved ones, for anyone who could use more foolishness in their finances. Uh, yeah, or you can also go to book.fool.com to learn more. Yeah. All right, David, you're sticking around. You're not going anywhere. I'm totally psyched about this. We're going to go. go on a trip in the Wayback Machine to when this book first came up. So, this is very exciting times. A long, long time ago. In a galaxy far away. Let's take a trip in the Wayback Machine. You can find a lot of articles about the Motley Fool's ups and downs over the years. And so I decided to check out some of the archives of the Washington Post, the New York Times, etc. <laughs> and to see I'm wondering what was there. Yeah. Let's go. So David, we're gonna we're gonna quiz you to see how well you remember uh, the good old days. Alright, so the first one is from The New Yorker in December of 1994. So I'm going to have you answer some questions, and then we'll, we'll see if you get the question right, and then we'll maybe have you talk a little bit about, about the article. All right. It's from Talk of the Town. Even by the cracked logic of modern entrepreneurism, apparently that's my New Yorker voice, <laughs> the gardeners are a stretch. They work in a 10 by 20 foot brick building behind an 18th century house in Alexandria, Virginia, where David lives with his wife and six month old daughter. In what the brothers call Fool Global Headquarters, or what in Fool shorthand? Fool HQ? 
Um, Robert, help me, because Robert, you've been around about as long as I have. I have not that not then. Back when it was a shed in your backyard, I don't know what else you guys called well, it. I mean, it was a cat house. <laughs> it was. It, that's basically where we kept our cat duchess. Is it a, a cat house also the deal yes, for there, a whorehouse? There, there is another, there is I mean, another meaning for will, cat house. I'll just tell you that I, I naively have used that phrase truthfully for years because our cat, who is 19, duchess. Now we all know the secret behind the Motley Fool. I just literally spit laughed across the table at David Gardner. Oh. So it sounds like that wasn't the right answer either. <laughs> <laughs> That's a better answer, I'm sure. <laughs> Folly Central. Ah, Folly Central. Yep. We did use that, although that's gone a little bit out of style. We haven't used Folly Central in recent years. We do use Full Global Headquarters probably even more today than we did oh, yeah. back then. Yeah. It was a joke back then. These days, it's not a joke anymore, which is pretty exciting for us as entrepreneurs and as fellow fools. Yeah, from a shed to Singapore and Canada and... Anyway, Folly Central. I came to the Fool in 1999. I will say the word Folly itself was more prominent with the company. We even had Follywood, which was what I guess just like cultural commentary about movies and things like that. Yeah, it was our AOL site because back then we were just an AOL site. The World Wide Web did not exist yet. AOL was uh, going great guns, and we started to open up other topics. And so we had a we had a, a news and culture site. We had a sports site, the Fool Dome, and sure enough, we had an entertainment site called. You'd have to, right? Follywood. Yeah, absolutely. All right, the next one comes from the Washington Post. It was Kara Swisher who wrote this in 1995. The gardeners aggressively peddled their idea to America Online, the, nas- the nation's largest online service. Leonsis, this is Ted Leonsis, I'll have you explain who he is, said that they were relentless in trying to get America Online to make them sysops, the tech jargon for system operators, on the vast system. That included letters, faxes, telephone calls, and even <laughs> a stint of hanging out where... Uh, so, uh, this, by the way, was not really true. And we can talk about that briefly. But um, we, were we outside? Were we sleeping outside the corporate headquarters? You were, were, we... you were actually in the lobby of America Online's headquarters in Vienna to persuade executives to give them a chance. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I love that you found that. I have forgotten it, like yeah. I've half forgotten all of these. Although we, it was an honor to be Talk of the Town New Yorker just yeah. a few months after we'd started, or or to be written up by Kara Swisher, a very accomplished journalist in the Washington Post. Uh, the little bit of background I'll give is just that Ted Leonsis, uh, his company, I think it was Redgate Communications, had recently been purchased by AOL. This is, again, still so early. This is way before AOL became a monster and yeah. ended up merging with Time Warner. And Ted Leonsis was a very successful executive at AOL, uh, who did well for the company and well for himself. And so, when AOL kind of started to fall apart, you know, it still exists today and, and uh, is a partner of The Motley Fool, but from the machine, the empire that it was with the Time Warner merger 2001, um, uh, Ted moved on and ended up buying the Washington Capitals yeah. hockey team, Wizards, the Washington Wizards basketball yeah. team. And here in Washington, D.C., he's like our sports owner. He's the much better sports owner than the owner of the Redskins, by the way. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. um, so and, and Ted remains a friend. It's just a, a, a really dynamic thinker and doer. Uh, we never... Uh, was it peddled or we never aggressively, aggressively tried to convince... Aggressively peddled, yes. Yeah, you that, were relentless. So, occasionally, I think it's fair to say... Journalists, quote, get spun, end quote. And Kara, you got spun on that one. <laughs> and we've had fun joking about this over the years. In fact, Tom and I, um, well, there's a whole separate story that we won't have time for today. But if you ever want to meet me at a Motley Fool event and ask me about, tell the story about what you said about Leonsis to the Washington Business Journal, I will share that story out with you. But 
the key here is that we were honored and delighted to be working with AOL. But no, we never slept outside their headquarters or um, are, are deeply wished or requested that AOL um, start us a site. Really, what Ted was doing there is he was trying to make it sound, and he was successful with this, really attractive to work with AOL. He was competing with others where we could have gone on CompuServe or Prodigy, for those who remember those services. <laughs> wow. And so AOL was in the business of trying to say, we're the place, we're the shop that's the cool place that everybody wants to work with. And so that, that article came across as clearly saying that, you know, yeah. the gardeners were desperate to work with AOL, and, and you should be too prospective entrepreneur, whoever you are, was the implication. All right, now we're going to end. We have a third final story. Oh my golly, it's another? Gonna, it's going to end on I a, love it. a sadder note, but Uh-oh. I couldn't not share this okay. one. You'll okay. find out why. All right. This is from the Washington Post also, and it's titled, Awake for the Motley Fools, February 10, 2001. Mm. After they got the news, and this is the news of some layoffs here at the Fool. Ah, uh, yes. They sought asylum two blocks away in the bar where they went so many times as colleagues and now as colleagues no longer. They arrived in the early afternoon and this is what they did. Drank, toasted, drank, hugged, drank. And one fool described in this article as tall and ponytailed puts his hand on Cannon's shoulder and leans in for a sort of hug that guys do. Brief, distant, manly. <laughs> Question is, who was this tall, ponytailed, manly hug giver? Okay. Was it Rick Engdahl? No. It was? It was. Unbelievable. I love it. Uh, They didn't spell his name correctly in the article, but yes, yes. Well, Rick continues to have a ponytail today, so, I mean, they got that right. And he, he he is taller than the average human. Ponytail comes and goes. <laughs> um, and what, what they were writing about was our one horrible year. Yeah. We've had, I'd say, 23 good to sometimes great years and one horrible year in 2001, which wasn't just horrible for The Motley Fool. That would be a very myopic right. view. It was horrible for the stock market. It was horrible for our nation. Uh, 2001 was probably my least favorite year, but we had a ton of layoffs. We laid off three separate times that year, each time thinking, well, that's all it's going to be. We're not going to have to do this again. We had to do it three times, and we lost three quarters of our staff, mm-hmm. and that was the final one. So it's tough when you have about 435 employees and you say goodbye to 100. That hurts. Uh, to say goodbye to another 100 when you didn't think you'd have to do that, that hurts. What really hurt was when you're left with about 200 employees and you need to let go of 100 more. And they've already been through the war with you. In some cases, they moved their families to Alexandria, Virginia to work for you. They'd been with us in some cases for five years. Some of them were family members. And they were some of our very best. That's why we would let them go very last. And we had to let them go. So that article was kind of a little bit of a drive by ambulance chasing Washington Post article uh, tracking our employees that had just been let go, or in some cases not, uh, consoling those who were at a local bar. Because at the time, the Washington Post had kind of a fascination with what was happening, not just to the Motley Fool, but to the tech scene in Washington and the so called internet bubble, dot com, et cetera, which the Post, in some ways, was, in in my mind anyway, not averse to, because it was sort of the older media establishment, a little bit of bricks and mortar going on kind of there. And so, to report on these young internet startups, the go-go years, and how they're falling apart, um, what, you know, it, it didn't feel like a great, yeah. from my hometown newspaper that I grew up with. All that said, um, who owns the Washington Post today? 
<laughs> yeah. Jeff yeah. Bezos. <laughs> and Jeff Bezos has given me about a 300 bagger over the last uh, 20 years. So I'm absolutely delighted by how things have played out with the post. But yeah. I mean, we you know we appreciate any media scrutiny we get, whether it's uh, positive or negative. If people care enough to see what the fools are doing. I love it, but really, what I love in conclusion is that you went back and did that homework, Allison, and presented those three <laughs> snapshots. Yeah, and to, and to get Rick Engdahl in there on the final one, that is the way this podcast should end. <laughs> I'm still giving out hugs, David. Thank you again for joining us, and thank you for writing the Motley Fool Investment Guide a few a few years ago. No, it's <laughs> just a few. I still have my first edition, autographed by Tom and David at a Aww. bookstore in 1997. Before I think. you started working at the two Fool. years before I started working yeah. at the Fool. That's yeah. how we first That's met. Awesome. I love that story, Robert. And you know, so many people have helped us with this book. So Tom and I are the first to say thank you very much to. To you, you both, uh, who've done work on this book and the launch of this book, and and a lot of fools internally. So yeah, it's it's just a book, but it's it's a it's a weapon out there. I think it's a weapon yeah. against financial illiteracy. There's a lot of that out there, and I really hope that uh, anybody who's not previously read the Motley Fool Investment Guide will read it. And especially if you have friends or family that you think would benefit from some of the thoughts that we've shared this this time together, I hope you'll do that because. Um, it, I think it's a better world. Yeah. The more people who read the Motley Fool Investment Guide, the better the world is. There's a direct causal thing there going on, <laughs> yeah. right? Yes, yes. Or go get it at the library. You don't have to buy it. We would You're love right. it if you bought it. That's right. Simon Schuster won't like you as much. Um, it's their product, not ours. I mean, we get a little bit as authors, yeah. but Simon Schuster would prefer you buy it. But if you want to read it at the library, we're good with that too. What we can promise, though, is that it's been updated for 2017, 18, and that's the big news here. Yeah. The new, new thing. New, new thing. All right, so go check it out. Uh, before we go, we have a bunch of postcards that came in. So let's just go through it. All right. Jimmy from Tallahassee went hiking in Banff. Jim says Ni Hao from Shanghai. He listens to the show while doing laps in the pool with a waterproof MP3 what? player. I know. That's crazy. Ni Hama. Ni Shantayama. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Cock a doodle doo. Here we go. Uh, good old Kirby. Jiao Tian Dawei. Are you learning Chinese or is this? Just I took like... it in, in college. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh. Impressive. Wo Jiao Tian Dawei. What did you just say? My name is David Gardner. Of course. Oh. Really quick note here what the Chinese do with our first names is they try to translate them as phonetically to the ear accurately as possible. Uh-huh. And so Dawei is David. Oh. When I say Tian, that's Gardner. Oh. Literally translated. But David just sounds like Dawei. So what Dawei might mean in Chinese is almost random, right? It's kind of funny. So they're, they're phonetically translating your first name, and it might have a really funny Ooh. meaning. Uh, and then they're going with more literal translation translation of your of your surname. So your la- so your, your surname comes first. So of Gardner then would be like someone who tills the earth yes. in yes. Chinese. Okay. Yes. So it's Tian. okay. Dawei. And we'll have, to, we'll have to figure out what that means. I'm sure some of our listeners can help us with that. Uh, all right, Kirby climbed Diamond Head in Hawaii and wanted to share the view. He gave us a massive panoramic postcard. Uh, Tim sent a card from Iceland where he ran the Reykjavik Marathon. Holy cow. Joan sent a card from Crater Lake. She was on her way to view the eclipse and she was listening to all of our podcasts along the way. Jean and Becky also went on an adventure to the eclipse and they sent us a card from Chattanooga. Wow. Of a train. <laughs> That's awesome. It's awesome, David. Look at look at the real. These are all actual real postcards. Yes. I, I mean, I've heard you do this on the show, but I didn't know that I'm looking. You got a stack of oh, them. Oh, I know. We have this the is best so much listeners. more fun than my podcast. Well, I should do this. No, well, a lot of these cards say I listen to all the podcasts, so it's like they're for you too. But I'm so glad you both do that and have done that. I mean, it is the human dynamic that we love. That's what makes the Motley Fool foolish. There I think. are real people that listen to our <laughs> show, it's beautiful. David. This is proof. <laughs> 
So again, David, thank you for joining us. The show is edited manly by Rick Engdahl for Robert Brokamp. I'm Allison Southwick. Stay full. I just got to get out alive. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.